0: Welcome to the one-on-one with one and only sports podcast. I'm your host, Theo Wan. Welcome to season two of the podcast, where we are going to be looking at the stories and lives of the players, coaches, and personalities that make up the world of Ultimate. Each week, I will talk to a new guest, and we will talk about their journey into Ultimate, what their life in Ultimate looks like, their most memorable games, and a fun rapid-fire segment to end the episode. If you like the podcast, we would love for you to subscribe and get the word out about the podcast to others. Your support is truly appreciated. New episodes come out every Tuesday. This episode is brought to you by Haddock Sport Performance. Is your training making you better on the field? Haddock Sport Performance provides a complete strength and conditioning experience designed for ultimate athletes. With over five years of experience at the elite international level and a global group of athletes, they have come to appreciate that training is a partnership. And with HSP, their goal is to provide each athlete with a truly personal and unique training experience. They work tirelessly with you to get to know you as a person and as an athlete, and together build a plan for you to be your best in competition. If you are invested in your own success and performance, they are here to support you. To know more about their methods and philosophy, head to HaddocksportPerformance.ca or get a look at their day-to-day by checking out HSP on Instagram. Now with all that done, let's go. This week's guest is Calvin Lynn. Calvin is the head coach of the Ultimate Team at the University of Texas at Austin, Tuff. He has been the head coach since 1996 and has won several awards along the way. He has been named the South Central Region Coach of the Year twice and the Old South Region Coach of the Year once. He was also named USA Men's Regional Director of the Year in 2017. Under his leadership, Tuff has been to Nationals 13 times, finishing third in 2009 and fifth seven times while winning their region a total of nine times. As a player, Calvin played for the first Seattle Sockeye team and made it to the finals with them in 1995. He's also played Nationals with the Houston Hounds in 1997 and with Blaze of Glory in 1999, before playing on the first Austin Doublewide team in 2001. He has played in the Masters Division since 2006, one year of Grand Masters, and has played great Grand Masters ever since. He has won USA Nationals three times, with Surly in 2008, Tejas in 2014, both in the Master's Division, and with Relics in the Great Grandmasters Division in 2017. He has won World Ultimate Club title in the Open Master's Division with the Keg Workers out of Seattle. Outside of Ultimate, Calvin is a university distinguished teaching professor at the University of Texas at Austin, with research interests in computer architecture, compliers, and security. Here is my interview with coach Calvin Lynn. So I'm here with Calvin Lynn. He's had a long ultimate career and also a distinguished coaching career at the University of Texas at Austin. So really excited for this interview. Calvin, how are you doing today? Doing great. Thanks. How are you? I'm, uh, I'm doing well. I'm ready to hear about your career. So we're going to take it all the way back. Your journey into ultimate. How did you find out about this sport? What led you to it? What were the circumstances that kind of got you there?
1: So I had heard about Ultimate when I was in college, but back then I was, I was totally into volleyball. And then when I went to grad school in Seattle at the University of Washington, there was a day, and I remember very well, I was working on my computer on some assignment, and this guy comes in and says, hey, Calvin, let's go play Ultimate. You know, we need one more guy. And I was like, no, 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 it's a stupid sport. And, and he had to really beg me. He came back three times, and I'm like, you know, I don't want to. And he says, I said, fine, I'll go out there and back then i learned how to throw a forehand and so i went out there and there was this guy named Jude Stoller who was six foot four and really fast and we ended up on the same team and we just hucked it to each other back and forth and back forth i'm like wow this is a great game right so th- so that kind of hooked me i was still really into volleyball back then so i think you know at some point jude got me into a local tournament which was really funny because he he goes up to the top Seattle team and calls the guy up and says, hey, you know, I hear you have a tournament. Um, I'm bringing a team and we're going to beat you. And, of course, we got blown away. But but I think I started playing some city league. And then at some point I tried out for, uh, you know, what would become sockeye. And I only made it because that first year there were about five guys who defected from the Seattle team, the top Seattle team, to play with the Oregon donors because Oregon, the Oregon donors had made it to nationals. And they thought, okay, you know, we've been – you know, second field in Seattle for so long. I want to go to nationals. And that opened up a spot for me at the bottom of the roster. And that's kind of how I, that's how kind of how I got into it.
0: And with that experience, what did you learn on those Seattle teams before you eventually transitioned to Austin, Texas?
1: Well, I learned so much, right? I've been pretty lucky to play on really good teams throughout my career, but there was a short period in 19, I think 90 where I played on the second Seattle team for like two tournaments. And I remember we went the Flower Bowl, which was the Vancouver tournament. And we only won it because like Portland went down to the Labor Day tournament and Sockeye went down to Labor Day tournament. And so, but I played with this guy named Joy Johnson, who was an old Rude Boys player from Boston. And, and we won the tournament. And I remember that what I learned from him was, you know, it doesn't have to always look pretty. If you just maintain possession of the disc, you know, you win a lot, right? And the other funny thing that we, I learned was we had this guy who was a total loose cannon, but we found a way to very politely marginalize him you know, we found a role for him in the, as a chaser in the cup. And we, I just kept telling him, man, you're doing great. You get, we need you in the cup. And he was just so exhausted that he couldn't huck it anymore. And so it worked out great. And anyway, so, so I kind of learned from every experience. And then in, in Seattle, playing with Sockeye, there were some great, you know, vets I learned from Chris Van Holmes, who's in the Hall of Fame, Troy Freever, just, you know, EK, Eric Kehoe, just a bunch of players who had, you know, so much wisdom. And that's really why I started coaching, I thought, wow, I've learned so much from these guys. I feel like I should kind of pass it along. And, and I also thought maybe I could do some good in Austin where, you know, there wasn't, you know, it was a, it was a good, great community, but it was kind of small. And, and I thought they could maybe you know, benefit from some experience.
0: <laughs> Big uh, shout out to Sakai there for your growth as a player and, and eventually as a coach and seeing them win in 2019. How was that for you as a early alumnus of the team? Well,
1: you know, it was great. It's weird. So right when I left soccer, we were in the middle of, you know, they the finals three years in a row and never won it. Right. And so, you know, that experience where you're right on the doorstep, but you can't win at all is, you know, that last step is huge. And I would say that, you know, by the time we got to 2019, I, wait, was it was 19. No, they won it earlier than that. But, uh, but at any rate, by the time they finally won it. Yeah, I, I was, I felt great for them. But it was also getting to the point where a lot of the guys I knew weren't playing with them anymore. Right. So you know, there's obviously some pride in the team, but, but it wasn't really my team.
0: And can you talk a little bit about what led you to Austin? You played with the Houston Hounds as well. So what led you to that uh, place and eventually where you're living now?
1: So when you're looking for an academic job as a professor, typically there aren't that many jobs available. So you sort of just do a nat- national search. And so I applied, I don't know how many places, all over the country. And back then, it was a really, really tough job market. And we have a top 10 department here, and it's a great place to live. And I never actually had envisioned ever living in Texas, but I came here, it's, it fell in love, it's a great place. And so I've just been very lucky. It's, it's a great department, it's going to create ultimate scene, it's a great city. So it was sort of a no brainer. It was the best job opportunity that I had, and it turns out a great place to live.
0: And then in 2001, there, A team was founded in Austin. Can you give the audience a little bit of information into how that came about? Austin Double White has been very successful. Made the finals in 2017. And they beat Revolver all the way back in 2012 to win the national title. So they are a pretty big-name team. They've had some really good players that you may have heard of. Kirk Gibson being one of them. So how did that come about with you forming the team there?
1: Well, okay, so I didn't form it. It was founded by Keith Sandell and Todd Tversky but I was a founding member. So what happened was, so when I first got to Austin, the best, there was sort of two main teams. There was one team in Dallas, one in Houston, but I think the best team in Texas was clearly the Hounds. And so I would, a few of us from Austin would, would drive down there, you know, two and a half, three hours to go practice and join, and play with them. But as sort of, you know, the team grew, we got, we ended up having more and more people in Austin. And as the Hounds, I don't know, you know, they'd been going for a while at some point, two of the guys from Austin said, look, let's just form our own team. And so that's when Keith Sandel and Tal Tversky started double-wide and pulled in some of the old hounds from Houston. And so really it was it's sort of a – it was a different team, but it, it was, you know, some of the core guys were from both teams. But it really did allow us, especially in the early years, to grow with Austin college players and, and some of the young guys there.
0: And was the intention – with Double Wide to create a pipeline of university players to eventually play on that team? Was that was that ever a thought that came about, or it came it kind of came organically?
1: Well, to be honest, you know, you'll have to ask Keith and Tall, but I think they had a couple of things in mind. One, they wanted a local team. We'd never really had a top, I guess it'd been years since we had a top tier sort of Austin team. And they wanted to turn it into a, a national power. I don't know if they really thought about the pipeline. But I will say that over the years, it's been a great relationship. Having our great young players get the experience of playing club at a high level accelerates their improvement. And similarly, it's a positive feedback cycle, right? When when they improve on, on double-wide, they come back and they get even better on uh, for tough the next year. That sort of just eats the next generation. So it's worked out very well. And, you know, in some recent years, they've been... More of a statewide team, so they're putting guys from you know A and M and Dallas and so forth, uh, and actually you know Texas Tech all over. So it's sort of become a, a sort of a statewide resource now. Uh, but having them, having the soul, having Roughnecks around, that's
0: all very useful for our Alex. For sure. And so we'll wrap up your ultimate career here with talking about some championships that you won in the Masters division. So, what was that like winning uh, two Masters division titles and then a great Grandmasters title as well?
1: Well, let's see. Surely was a great, great experience. There were a bunch of great guys from Minnesota. I guess, you know, anytime you win, it's, 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 it's great. And, and I've been lucky to win dozens of tournaments throughout my life. I don't know. It's kind of weird to say this, but the, the finals was kind of anticlimactic because we played Dallas and I think we jumped out to like a 10-2 lead. And that's always a lot of fun to just crush a team, but it doesn't quite have the drama. Right. But yeah, no, it was a great experience. It was a great team. And I think that they got contributed. We had, we had some uh, a couple of other strong players who joined my year. And I think that what was kind of great to see is that how that team has just kind of carried on, you know, they've never been a great open team, but they're just attracting all sorts of talent for at the master's level. And now that that's fed into their grandmasters team and now their great grandmasters team. So they've got the whole pipeline going. And like I said, a great bunch of guys and, and, uh, a bunch of great players. I think winning with chaos was great because it was kind of an a reunion of a lot of our double wide players. And we had never done that well at nationals. But to be honest, the year we won, we had a couple of things in our in our favor. One, it was we, nationals were being held in Florida and you know we knew it was gonna be hot and humid. And but the biggest thing was was world was like two weeks later in Italy or something like that. And so if I remember three of the top teams just said, you know, we're not even going to go to nationals. And so we're like, Sean McCall was the captain. He's like, yeah, you know, I think we can win this. And we're like, yeah. And then it was, it was really, it was kind of nostalgic too, because in the finals, we played Woolly Mammoth, which was the Florida team and Florida, you know, was we were all in one big region back when we were in open and, and they were sort of our, one of our rivals. And, you know, they were their typical ragtag group where they had a very small rotation. But, but what I remember was, uh, our depth kind of went out, right? We uh, <laughs> we were down, but at the end, we just yeah, we, our depth kind of wore them out. And in fact, a bunch of our guys were cramping up, and and that was sort of a personally memorable tournament for me because I I had pulled my hamstring like a week before nationals, and I did everything I could to try to get healthy. But I get, I show up at nationals, and I, I you know I can't even warm up. I'm jogging and it doesn't feel good. But I you know I kept still doing my little rehab stuff. As we played, so I kind of resigned myself, like, okay, I'm not going to play. I'm just going to do what I can from the sidelines. But, but as the, the tournament goes on, I keep, like, running across the field, jogging across the field to get to the other sideline at times. And at some point, I'm like, hey, you know, maybe I'm okay. You know, so like, okay, I'll, I'll play in some, you know, worthless game. And But anyways, by the time we got to the end, I was actually running okay. And with people dropping like flies, you know, I was, like, by far the oldest guy in the team. I actually, you know, got to contribute in the, the finals when we won. And, you know, everybody else was so tired. It was like, oh, yeah, I'm I'm like fresh as a daisy. So that was personally satisfying as well. And then the great grandmasters, uh, this was a team that Dan Powers put together. And it was, again, one of those kind of anticlimactic things. We were so stacked. And it was the first year of great grandmasters. And we just pretty much rolled everybody. I mean, I think almost until we got to the finals, nobody got more than like five points off of us. Uh, We had a really great finals against Boulder where, and that was fun. You know, they had a lead played out of their minds. But well, you know, we managed to uh to pull
0: it out at the end. It's always like I said, it's always great to win a title. We had talked off air some online communications and you had mentioned you made a lot of uh finals, but you've come in second many times as well. So it's uh, it's always good to to get the monkey off the back and win some, right? So Yeah, absolutely. And so now we're gonna go back into to memory lane here, but more as a coach. So you started coaching in nineteen ninety six what led you into coaching and can you kind of give a snapshot into your coaching career at Texas and the evolution of Ultimate there and what you've learned as a coach, all that good stuff?
1: Right, right. You know, as I said, I, I wanted to coach because I felt like I could give back and, and really, I had I learned a lot and I wanted to sort of pass it along. And I also mentioned that Austin has an amazing Ultimate scene. So when I, when I showed up in December on my house hunting trip before I moved down in January, First thing I did is I, I went to the ultimate fields and there was a pickup game on the, the UTIM fields. And it was amazing right away. I had this huge community and I just slid right in. It was amazing. So, you know, like after practice or pickup, we just went to have dinner and everything like, wow, these guys are awesome. But at pickup, I met one of the guys, Chris Perkis who was on the UT team. And I don't know how it came about, but he said like, well, will you coach us? Or, or maybe somebody jokingly said, Calvin's going to coach you. I'm like, yeah, sure. You know, I'll do it. And, and that was it. Like, I was like, okay. So like, you know, it wasn't really a trial period or anything or an interview. And back then there really weren't that many coaches in college ultimate, right? And so, so that's how it started. And back then the team was pretty informal. <laughs> we probably had, it was mainly grad students, a few undergrads, not very serious. I think we were called the cucarachas, the cockroaches that first year I was there. And I remember showing up first practice, I had this super detailed plan to the minute, you know, what we're going to do, how we're going to warm everything. And I show up and then, I don't know, are like eight guys there or something, maybe 10 guys. And so I'm like, okay, you know, throw that out. Well, no, so, you know, I adapted, right? But it was probably by third, you know, I guess I'm not very smart because by, by the third practice, I stopped making these super detailed plans because I'm like, you know, we're not going to have enough guys to, to scrimmage and all that. And it was funny because in the early days, old college ultimate really was quite different. Like we'd show up at a tournament. And I could, immediately, I just watched teams warm up. I'm like, okay, yeah, we're going to beat these guys. And, you know, like these guys, you know, the, the flaws were so glaring, right? You know, you, you just, you know, say, okay, here's the thing, guys, you know. But we also weren't very good. <laughs> and part of it was, you know, our guys just didn't really have the ethic. We didn't work very hard. There were, you know, a lot of grad students were worried about other things. We didn't know how to win. But in, I think it was around 2000, Matt Skippy Sewell, who was one of our players, and he's, he's a great guy. He, he He's always thinking big. He's like, we got to take Texas Ultimate to the next level. So when he graduated, he came up with a, with a scheme to recruit more undergrads and to make it a more serious team, right? So we changed our name, and I think that's when it became tough. And he came up with a scheme by which we had an in intramural mini Ultimate League, four on four, or maybe three on three, I can't remember, right? And, and the school loved it because, like, yeah, you know, it cost them nothing. gets a bunch of, you know, for two or three weeks, a bunch of guys show up and play Ultimate. We ran the whole thing. And at the end, we would say, okay, and if you like this game, there's, this is just sort of the baby version. There's a big version on a full field. Come join us next week for a trial. And, and it was kind of cool because, you know, guys who knew nothing about ultimate would show up. You know, you could see if they were competitive. You could see if they were athletic and all that kind of thing. And so a huge number of undergrads start showing up. And that's really where when Tuck started taking off. And I think Skippy was actually the first head coach of that team. I was an assistant coach. at so I was, was coached for most of the time. And then I guess when he... He had that vision. I'm like, sure, go ahead. You know? And that's really kind of how it took off. And eventually, we kind of went away from that scheme of uh, recruiting folks. That was really sort of the genesis of, of, a, of a more serious team. And in fact, I, I remember also, even before then, some of the guys who had some aspirations were asking me, like, you know, what do we have to do to get to the next level? I'm like, okay, well, here's what you got to do, right? You got to start getting into the serious tournaments. You can't be playing in, you know, the B division of Mardi Gras. You got to be playing in the top tournaments, right? Because that's how you get better you know, you have to start getting serious. You got to travel more, blah, blah, blah. And so that kind of dovetailed well with Skippy's notion of increasing the, the talent pool. <laughs> and and through the years we've had, especially in the early years, most of our guys did not play, come playing ultimate. Juniors in Texas has been behind some of the hotbeds in Seattle and Minnesota and Philadelphia and stuff like that. So, and of course it's growing now, but certainly in the early years, we we would just get, I should play tennis or band or basketball or whatever and we teach them how to play.
0: (laughs) And how has the recruiting shifted now? You mentioned a little bit about recruiting there. Uh, You were recruiting more with intramurals, but what's the recruiting like now? Texas Top is obviously a pretty big name in the national scene, being at national so many times in your tenure, winning your region as well, multiple times. So what's the recruiting been like?
1: We don't really have a real coordinated effort. We'll hear from... Either the captains or I will, will hear from people who are either considering coming here, want to visit, so forth. So obviously, then we can show them around and uh, talk to them and all that. Every once in a while, a coach will say, "Hey, you know, I've got these great students these great players who're thinking about coming to Texas. You want to talk to them?" You know, and I'm always happy to talk to you know potential players. But really, we just most of our recruiting is just among our student body. When freshmen come, or when students come to orientation in the summer and sign up for courses. We try to have tables out and to try to get them signed up to, to just try out. And, you know, we'll get hundreds of students who will sign up. But then, you know, only anywhere from 50 to maybe 100 will show up for tryouts. Probably not 100. I mean, maybe 80. 80. So we've had at, at times maybe 120 at tryouts, but that includes returning players and stuff. And, and I, as I've said, I, I don't really care how many we get. I, I'd rather just get five or 10 great athletes, right? Um, but you can never, it's, you know, sometimes hard to... How to get them? Our our intramural fields are not right on campus; they're they're miles north of campus. So
0: it's not the type of thing that students just stumble across. They have to kind of show up there. With your coaching time with Texas, can you speak a little bit for the audience about the evolution of college ultimate? So you mentioned before, not a lot of coaches. It was kind of more ragtag. If you've watched some of the you know documentaries that have talked about College Ultimate. I know the Black Tide one as an example. Everyone's in tie-dye shirts. It's kind of, you don't kind of see that now. And so what has College Ultimate uh, evolved into now in your time as a coach?
1: It's just a much more serious endeavor, right? We get so many more players at college who've played before. We have junior's programs popping up everywhere. The the talent level is just, the skill level is so much better than it was before. Got all sorts of great coaches throughout the country. Now, I think it's pretty rare for teams not to have coaches, and certainly some teams do, and that that makes a huge difference. I can think of games where we won, and I'm thinking, you know what, I think if they had a good coach, we we would have lost that game. I I think that's sort of the biggest biggest difference. It's just sort of exploded in in quality, and I think that's a great thing.
0: And so within your program, you have an A and B team, is that correct? Right. And so what has that done for development in both? Uh, your program, and then locally as well within the local club scene? So, you know, to us, the B team's a
1: great a great deal because, well, let me just say this. we One of our explicit goals is for our B team to generate players for our A team. And I think someone was telling me that some like four of the last five years, one of our tough captains has been from the B team. And there have been years when I mean, a third of our players had been promoted from the D, B team at one point. There have been years also recently when we've had very few, but that's one of our goals. And and we've been lucky to have some great coaches for the B team and a lot of them have played with tough. And so, you know, we're, we're kind of all teaching the same system roughly. Right. And that, that helps as well. It's great as a program to have a way to develop talent in, in a way that you can't just do with one team. And, you know, what's it done for the large community? I, you know, I, I think just in general, All the college teams, not just ours in the area have contributed greatly to all the club teams, whether it's co-ed or city leagues or or open or the women's team. Our women's team has done great too. So I think it's just, you know, part of this great community that, that again, feeds on itself. Having strong club teams helps your college teams, having strong college teams help.
0: And we're going to talk a little bit now about sort of your philosophy as a coach. So I want to ask, what do you look for when you're recruiting players? Maybe someone listening to this podcast wants to play College Ultimate. Maybe not for you, but, but somewhere else. And so what are you looking for when you are at tryouts? You got your returners that you're pretty set on, let's say, or you kind of know what they're about. So what are you looking for from freshmen or just players that are new to the sport? Well,
1: that's a great question. So obviously, the thing that kind of always attracts people's attention is just athleticism or great skill. Like, wow, that person can really throw. But what's interesting to me is that some of our best players have shown up, and you know, you're like, "Yeah, I don't think so," and then they just through their level of the game and their their work ethic, they make themselves into great players, right? And you know, we have lots of examples of that. We had a great player one year who we actually cut, and because we had all these tall guys, right, and we're very athletic, and said to me well you know what uh can i still go to this little fall tournament with you guys i'm like oh absolutely you know it's the next week he's like so why don't i just stay with the team for a week until that tournament yeah yeah that makes total sense anyways he turned out to be great right and so we we kept him and we never cut him right and we had another guy who you know i actually played some club with him on this sort of second tier local team riverside and came up for the b team and the other guys loved him and i remember when the captain said, we got to take this guy. And I'm like, you know, you can, you, we can take him, but I don't think he was ever going to contribute to top, right? I mean, you know, he's slow, he can't throw, and he drops a disc. So what, you know, what, what do we need that for, right? So we take him and he just worked so hard. He was all region his senior year, right? And he was a key reason why we, uh, <laughs> we made nationals, right, in his last two years, right? So, and he was a captain. I guess what I would say is it doesn't really matter what the coaches are looking for if you want it persevere. And so when we're picking players, obviously, like I said, certain things stand out, but we always try to give guys a longer look. And so even when guys are in the B team, we're kind of, you know, we're sniffing around like, Hey, you know, how's that guy doing? And so forth, even though they don't, may not always know that because um, (laughs) they're the guys who develop differently or they run funny, but it turns out they got a lot in them.
0: And in terms of the longer look, do you run, I know a lot of club teams do this in the early spring, kind of late spring. Do you run a lot of tryout tournaments as well, or is it mostly just a a full tryout process, and then you kind of have your team heading into the fall tournaments? So
1: typically what we do is we start with tryouts the first full week of classes. And we do that because our feeling is if we wait too long, people start joining frats and other things, and we we kind of lose our, our chance to get them. And we start with a little combine, and then pretty much start sorting guys out. And uh, to be honest, a lot of guys will sort themselves out by just, they stop showing up. And so, you know, I I mentioned sometimes we'll have like a hundred guys show up for for tryouts. And I think a huge number of them are like, oh, you know, Ultimates was kind of a joke in my high school. I can make that team. I'm going to go show up. And then they show up and they're like, oh, maybe not. Right. And so then they stop showing up. But pretty quickly, you know, within a week or two, we start kind of, we don't, we don't make cuts, but we sort of segregate sort of the like-minded guys so we can kind of evaluate them better. And, you know, usually within a c- couple of weeks or so, we kind of have what we call a tough plus. It might be 30, 40 guys and then a bunch of other guys are on the B team. And, and, you know, and even during that time, we're still sort of fluid. Like we'll move guys up and down. Sometimes we we'll move some vets down so that to help out the, the lower half so that they have, you know, more structure or whatnot, where we can get a closer look at some of those guys. But usually after a few weeks, we, we sort of have our, our eye on the guys. And, and now the good news is we get to see them without so many other people around we get to see how coachable they are and all that kind of stuff. And then usually in the fall, we have a couple of small tournaments. Sometimes coaches don't even go, we'll split up into two squads and it's, you know, I guess you could call those tryout tournaments, but really that's sort of the longer tryout. And so I don't know, usually by the end of the fall, we have 32 guys or whatever. And the last few years, we've actually kept them again. Sometimes people will fall out for other reasons, grade school, whatever. Every once in a while, someone will realize, you know, maybe it's better for me to just play a lot more on the B team. And we're like, you know, that's fine. But that's kind of how it goes. So that usually we're pretty set going into the spring. But for us, the fall is really key for development. We really want to, I know there are some, some teams out there who are much more informal in the fall. But we kind of want to set our culture and start developing guys as soon as we can. Because we
0: <laughs> we, we, have a, we usually have a long way to go. <laughs> That's a fair point there, and you got a little benefit of the weather here. I know I'm in the northeast region where I'm recording from, so certain uh, times like the fall or early spring tournaments, you don't get the benefit of the good weather that you do get in uh, Texas there. Oh, we're lucky to have the
1: ability to pretty much play year-round. And it used to be until a couple years ago that the only time we couldn't play was when it rained because we had these nice fields, and they didn't want to let you know, they're all grass. We couldn't mess them up. And so when it rained, we were really at a disadvantage because we never practiced in the rain. You would go run stairs or something when it would go for a run when it was raining. But a, a few years ago they we did our intramural fields and about a third of the fields now are turf, artificial turf fields. So now we get to practice year round. And that has been huge because to me, I would rather practice two hours or an hour and a half in cold, wet weather than you know three hours in perfect weather. We're going to get a lot better in that short amount of time. And so it is the case that when we have those artificial turf fields, we end up usually with less field space and shorter practice times, but it's been, it's been amazing. It's been really, it's really helped us.
0: Awesome. And can you share a little bit about, maybe don't give away all your secrets here, Calvin, but your coaching philosophy, what are your goals with coaching? Who are maybe some mentors or people that really impacted how you coach? Because everyone has a different coaching style and what they believe uh, in terms of even player development rotation, things like that? Uh, like I said, I've
1: learned a lot from lots of great players who have been captains and so forth. And so you learn things from, from all of them. I actually went to a coaching clinic with Matt Tang, who, of course, coached Fury for years. And that was amazing. He just makes everything look really easy. He's like, oh yeah, you know, if you, if you want guys, team to do this, then you know, just do that, right? Oh yeah, that makes sense, right? And he's obviously thinking about the big picture, right? The c- culture, everything. are my philosophies? Well, number one, I think I think that it's really important to set high expectations. And in fact, I guess even more important is, is to have a, a good culture, right? What, what, what do you care about as a team? And for us, I think that having a, a work ethic where we're going to be willing to develop is, is super important. And, and so part of that is setting high expectations. And I, I guess that goes back to Chris Van Holmes, who was, who was in the Hall of Fame. I think he was a captain of Sockeye one year. And so what happened was I pretty much was lucky to play with Sockeye my whole career there, but in that transition from volleyball to ultimate, there was my 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 second club season in the spring. I was still playing club volleyball and and soccer. I had their tryouts, and I was not. I had like I had hardly played any ultimate. I was still in volleyball mode. I went to tryouts, and I you know I was terrible. Right, even though I played a year already. They had a great mechanism where everybody who participated voted for everybody else, and you got more votes, their votes counted more. Okay. So, you know, I knew I wasn't going to make the team because I was like I'm terribly and I wasn't into it. Right. I was it was it was cold in Seattle and I was playing volleyball and I got like, to show up and like, OK, I try out. You know, and I still remember my, my friend, just one of the top players come to me and be like, you know, Calvin, I am sorry to say this, but you didn't make the team. I'm like, yeah, you know, I, I knew I wasn't going to make the team. But what was funny was I think I got like zero votes or something like that. And it was like, you know, it wasn't even close. Right. But what I remember was that's when I played for two tournaments with this second Seattle team and then Seattle went on a break, Sockeye went on a little break, you know, like a month break and during that time they had these just sort of open practices and Chris Van Holmes was leading them and, you know, we were just a bunch of second-rate ultimate players but what I loved was he just treated us all like we were like Sockeye players, like, oh, this is how you do with things, right? And that to me meant a lot and well, fortunately I don't, know, I don't even know why, they, they took me right after that and, and I was on Sockeye for fall season but that, that stuck with me and I don't know. I think that obviously natural toughness is a big deal. And uh, if you talk to Tina Booth, Dan Goldberg, they, they got all that down. And and that's something that even, you know, even from volleyball, you know, I mentioned playing doubles volleyball, you know, what was always frustrating to me being on a, on a big team, like whether it was baseball or basketball or, you know, six man volleyball is if you get in a bad situation and some of the guys just don't really believe they can make it and they don't, you know, they're not all there. And they're not' they're not mentally tough, you know, obviously there's something you can do as a team, but like what I love about doubles volleyball is I just need one more guy who would believe in us as much as I believe in us, and you know, as I like to point out, you know there, there's some games where the skill level is such that you can play your very best game and you're not going to beat this team and there are some other teams games where you know you can have play your C game or your B game and you're going to win because you're just way better. but what's great is all those games in the middle where you know they might beat you and you might it might, might beat them, and that's where being smart, being able to adapt, making adjustments, being mentally tough, really comes into play. It was something that always kind of stuck with me as a coach, too, is like, okay, you know, we have to make sure we win those games, right? and we don't want to give, any, we'll give away any games. I think over the years, we've, we've had just a ton of great comebacks and tough where uh, <laughs> I think we've we sort of exhibited those, those, those characteristics, and so that, I'm really proud of that.
0: And for any uh, aspiring coaches out there listening – how would you go about building the mental toughness for someone who doesn't know too much about it or someone who, you know, struggles with that even as a coach, how would you just look first step to to kind of building that on your team and in your culture? I mean, so first of all, hearing Tina Booth or Dan Dr. Dan Goldberg
1: or you know any of those folks talk about mental toughness that there's, you know, there's some simple things you can do such as, you know, to learning what's controllable, and what's not controllable. But more fundamentally, I think that if you want people to be mentally tough, you want to put people in positions where things matter as much as possible during practices. And then, you know, that just goes back to volleyball as well. When I was in college, our coach would just talk trash relentlessly in practice. And, and at one point, I don't know, somebody asked him like, coach, why, why are you doing this, man? You're just like constantly, you know, talking trash. And he's like, you know, I got to make you guys tough and I've got to apply pressure. And in practice, we don't have a team that's as good as our starting team. <laughs> so we got to put pressure every way we can. And so I got to play mind games with you to try to, you know, to, to make it tough on you. Right. And, and you know, and we knew, he, you know, that he was doing it off of good intention. It wasn't sort of a, an abusive thing. It wasn't like, you know, he was swearing at us and everything. A lot of times it was good natured but, but really, he was doing things to try to make us tough. And when we practice, we try to make things competitive and, but, you know, again, a lot, so much determined by the team. And I guess that's one of the things I would suggest coaches is that, you know, you may have your vision of what you want the team to be, but it doesn't matter what your vision is. If you can't get the team to buy into it, number one, and number two, you should sort of have an understanding of what you have to work with, both in terms of talent, in terms of, you know, mindset and all that. For example, oftentimes, one of the downsides of our players going off to, to play on double wide or soul or whatever is they're like, Oh, on double wide, we do this. And this is great. And, and it is great. Except for we have to realize that on double wide, everybody's got great throws or whatever. Right. And so things don't, you can't always just take something that t- works in one context and, and say, okay, you know, our rookies are going to do this now too. But so, so I think that would be my, my advice.
0: Awesome. And we're going to now shift Calvin into segment two day-to-day life. In the bio, there you are a professor at UT as well, so it's kind of convenient. I know a lot of people, if they're coaches, they actually work somewhere else in the city or, or have to travel far away, so you're lucky that you get to be at the campus and kind of know the the school culture a little bit better. With COVID, obviously, no season happening, but uh, what does your day look like before COVID there as a coach, balancing uh, being a professor and coaching?
1: Right, so actually, before I answer that, let me point out that I, I agree. My being on campus has been a huge boon for me as a coach, right? I, I will see guys in the gym. I'll see them walking on campus. They oftentimes would stop by my office just to, you know, talk. And in fact, one of my professors next door he used to laugh. He would say, yeah, I look at your whiteboard. I can't tell if it's, if it's ultimate stuff or if it's research stuff, because it all looks the same to me. You know? And I would also point out, I think there have been a ton of coaches out there who are also teachers. and And I've been lucky, right? Cody Mills at Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, I read he has to drive like an hour or an hour and a half to practice. I'm like, that's crazy, right? So that's that's great commitment.
0: Brian Jones for UConn as well. He had to travel pretty far.
1: A a lot of coaches have shown amazing dedication. I just feel like it's much easier to be embedded there and and to see the students and all that. Okay, you know, how do I balance life? I've got a, a lovely wife, two kids. And so I guess the first thing I would say is that life as a professor is pretty all-encompassing and very consuming. <laughs> so, for example, now that I have kids, what I typically do is you know get up at seven or seven thirty, whatever. Get the kids out and take them to school. Go to school all day. Typically, try to work out at the end of the day. Hopefully, I'm home when I'm not coaching for dinner with the kids. Night, hang out with my wife for a while. You know, watch TV, whatever we do, and then she usually wakes up early to go work out. So she might go to sleep at nine or something or 9.30, maybe 10. And that's when I start working. (laughs) So then I pretty much work. And, you know, if I'm lucky, I'll work till midnight. But a lot of times I'll be up all night or to three or whatever. And then, you know, wake up again. So point is, is it's kind of a crazy lifestyle where there's just always too much to do. And so I'm always just sort of fitting into my schedule, whatever I can do, whether it's research or teaching, or whatever. And ultimately, it's just part of that, right? So obviously, spend spent time preparing plans or meeting with players or coaches or captains or whatever. And we just squeeze that in. And that's just the way it is. And so I guess the best way to phrase this is when I had our first son, you, you, you find out that you know, these babies don't sleep very well oftentimes. And so your sleep schedule is completely messed up, which was terrible for my wife. And of course, she she had the brunt of it, right? Because she had to feed the baby. But to me, it wasn't a big deal. I was like, oh, no, this is just my normal life. i never get enough sleep. Yeah, so that's kind of a way to look at life as a professor. And and that's kind of what my day-to-day looks like.
0: (laughs) Busy times are less sleep. And in terms of the team schedule, how often are you involved in terms of the team activities? I I assume they're going to have practices, but also weightlifting, film. Are you involved in that as well? How involved uh, is that for you?
1: Yeah, obviously, I go to all the practices, and then typically I plan all the practices. We don't have set times to do film, and we'll just sort of fold that into practices and stuff like that. Lifting thing has been sort of a bugaboo of ours for a while, in that we haven't had, I think, the type of program we would we would like. Ironically, with COVID, we've actually had a much better better program, just because it's the type of thing you can do on your own. And we have a great coach this year who's joining, who's working with us, uh, Evans White Tech, And so, so this year, we've done actually a much better job of, of that aspect of the game. And also, we're not allowed by our university to go as a group of 20 and all go to the weight room and work out at the same time. So we're sort of hampered by that. So we, we sort of have to go in smaller groups. And that's also part of the problem. But, you know, it's not like anything. It's, it's not something we can't overcome. We just have to make it a priority. Hopefully this year we have, and then in terms of how COVID has affected us, yeah, it's it's been difficult, right? I mean, UT is open officially for school, but it's like a ghost town, right? So I, I teach Monday, Wednesday, Fridays there, and when I teach, we're the only class going on in the whole building, <laughs> and so so most students are actually taking online courses, and a large number of our ultimate players are actually living, you know, either on campus or around campus. But most of their classes are online, and some of our students are not even in town, so they're not, they're not practicing. But we've had you know some pretty good practices. Our, our turnout has been lower. We have some pretty strict rules about like you can't be within six feet and all that. We've looked into COVID quite a bit, and I think we came up with rules that I think are actually much more sensible. We're all wearing masks, they're not, they're not, they don't mandate that. We're all getting tested every week. UT has free testing for our students and staff and faculty. So all of us are being tested every week. And so for a while, we actually were doing some scrimmaging, but we stopped doing that. School found out they didn't want us doing that. (laughs) But like I said, we haven't had a single transmission amongst our team, even though we've had some players who've who've gotten it. So, yeah, so we've sort of shortened our our workouts and practices, and we've been doing more stuff in the weight room uh,
0: as, as a result of COVID. Just a quick editor's note, this next question was recorded before USA Ultimate brought down the news that the 2021 spring college season would move into the fall of 2021. There's a hope that there would be a season in the spring. Uh, it looks kind of bleak right now, but practicing in hopes that there might be something in the spring and, and potentially if not then, then just training kind of for next year. Is that sort of the goal there?
1: I think the guys know that there's a good chance there's no s- season in the spring. And in fact, that's probably the most likely scenario, especially since they are allowed. Of- Places where there aren't, there aren't even any students on campus, but we've we've had the attitude that we, we want to be ready, we want to keep getting better, and obviously individually players are making different choices. Right, we have especially some players in their last year may not want to work as hard <laughs> without the payoff of being able to play. We've got a bunch of young players who just want to get better, and they've been showing up. My personal hope is that we're we're doing fun things, good things, and getting better so that. Guys are seeing the benefit of coming to practice, even if they're not getting to play at tournaments. So that's kind of been our, our attitude. I don't know what the spring will be like, but we're going to kind of keep plugging away.
0: <laughs> that's definitely good to hear, Calvin, and, and sort of the positivity you have uh, focused on what's happening right now, because I know there's a lot of negativity out there uh, related to COVID and just all that that entails. So now we're going to go back into the Calvin Lynn Archive, Segment Three Memorable Games.
1: Can I say one more thing before we move to the memorable games?
0: Yeah. So I think that,
1: you know, I mentioned that a lot of coaches are actually teachers. And when you asked me who, what are some of my influences on coaching? What I neglected to say is that I've learned so much about teaching by just teaching. Being a professor is this weird position where, where they don't teach you how to teach. They just put you in front of a class and like, okay, well, you know, you're an expert in something, so you ought to be able to teach them, which is not necessarily true.
0: No, as a former teacher, it's definitely not true.
1: <laughs> and I feel like I've grown tremendously as a teacher over the years. Yeah. I think when I first started, I was a terrible coach. I mean, things that came easy to me, I be like, why can't you do that? It's so obvious. And so I would yell at them, like, just do this, right? And, and people would seem like, why are you yelling at them? You don't yell at other people. And so it took me a long time. I guess I'm not very smart, like I said, to realize, well, you know, it's just, it's just teaching, right? You know, I wouldn't yell at my students because they didn't know how to do the answer, right? You, you know, you got to train them. You got to teach them. So that's really informed me a lot. And you know, it's funny, I'm sure if some of my former players saw this, they'd be like, Oh, no, you still yell at us. But but I've gotten better. And I'm still trying to get better. Yeah, so you wanted to to go back into archives.
0: (laughs) Yeah, back in the archives. If uh, you want to give a quick snapshot of your favorite game as a coach, we'll start with that.
1: I think my favorite game as a coach. Well, let me say this. One of the great things about coaching is I've had so many great memories. And we've had, I think, tons of great moments. And to me, one of the best things in sports is to come back. And we've had lots of great comebacks. The one that I think is, really stands out was 2008 Regionals. It was a really strong team in our section, University of North Texas, UNT. And I think that was the first year they went to Nationals in their program history. And they had these two guys, and they had a lot of talent, but they had two guys, Jake Anderson and Kay Rich, uh, Kevin Richardson.
0: Double wide players. <laughs>
1: They were big players in double Y. They were like six to three and super fast. And we had nobody to match up with those guys. And at sectionals, which was in Windy Austin, they just crushed us. It was like 15 to 7 or something, which was like their perfect, you know, situation. Like just throw big shots and, you know, they'll come down with some of them. You know, we're trying to play possession and we just got crushed, right? So regionals comes, it's in Baton Rouge. It's a long story, so I'll try to make it a little shorter unless you want the long. Where we actually had a pretty tough road. Even like it was straight two bids, straight bracket play. Even our, our second game was super tough, right? Our star player was sick. We could hardly play. Just lots of things happened. We played a really underseated Texas state team and, you know, we're down two and had to come back and win at the cap. And then the next game is Oklahoma. They, they take half and we had to fight back. You know, it wasn't that close to that game, but we, so we had a pretty taxing regionals going to the finals. We're playing UNT and, you know, they're riding high, right? They just crushed that receptionist. They're fully expecting to just, you know, walk over us and go to nationals. Before the, our final starts, one of their captains comes up to me, and they've got a camera crew because they're documenting their whole journey to nationals. And it's like, hey, you know, Calvin, can we interview you and some of the players for the game? And I'm like, no, nah, I'd really rather not. And I mean, we got to focus on, you know, the game, but, you know, I'll be happy to talk to you after the game. One of their parents has got like a brand new Frisbee. They're recording every score like for, for posterity because, you know, it's going to be this beautiful trophy for them. <laughs> we didn't have a very really tall team. We had one guy, our best big man was this guy named Soup, who was 6'2". And on Saturday, he had preached his back and he couldn't play anymore. And so Saturday night, I gave him this Chinese limit, this stuff you put on your back and it always works, right? So I gave it to him next morning. He's like, God, ah, this is great, Calvin. I feel great. So he's like, okay. So I'm like, yeah, okay, we got him back. About five points into the game, blows out his ankle. So we lose him, I'm like, oh, great. We don't even have him. So anyways, such a story. We we pulled a start and we, you know, we're ready to go. We're playing with great intensity and we really make them work, but I'm a little worried. I'm like, wow, you know, we really, we did what we wanted to do and we really didn't stop them. I mean, you know, they didn't score on three passes, but they scored. And it wasn't like we were close to, I mean, we made them work, but it wasn't like we were going to stop them. And that was kind of the thing, like we just couldn't stop them. And so, you know, they take half and we're down a couple breaks. And at some point it gets to 8-12, game to 15. And at this point we haven't broken them the entire game. You know, we've tried zone, we've tried man, we've tried all sorts of stuff. And I'm thinking, you know, we, we got to break them four times now to win. They only need three points and we haven't broken them once. And we need to make sure that if we lose this game, we don't lose the, the, the backdoor finals because I'm looking next door and, you know, you know we got to play one of those teams. So I'm thinking, you know, should I back off a little bit? And I'm like, well, okay, we'll open up the roster just a little bit. So we have an O point put Soup's brother in, we call him Big Soup. He wasn't very fast. He was 6'4". And I'm like, you know, we'll get him some playing time, you know, rest the guys a little bit. We're not really going to pull the plug, but we'll just see what happens. And as I have like to put it, the, the team wouldn't let me quit. Right. So in that point, big soup comes up with this huge grab and it wasn't like he was this sky monster, but he just made this great grab. And he throws this break mark. Throw. And he was you know, he came, which was completely raw. So end of the year, he's throwing a break mark back in for a score. I'm like, yeah, you know, and so now it's nine, 12. Finally, we get a break 10, 12, but we're still down three breaks. <laughs> but the good news is when they're up there and you start coming back, all that feel good mojo kind of starts to go the other way. And Until then, you know, they had their camera crew and they were just so loud on the sidelines. It was just a huge party for them. But as we started getting closer, you know, you could kind of tell they were getting a little worried. And and here's where I think they kind of made a mistake, right? They didn't have a coach and they just kept playing their big guns every point. And I'm like, just play. Oh, we can't stop you. But but they got tired. And I think part of that was they were playing their guys and they weren't resting them on D. And they got maybe a little tight. And, you know, next thing you know, it's 13-all. And the cap goes off <laughs> and uh, they turf a forehand or something and we put it in, we score. And so to me, that was a game where we, I mean, there are a lot of comebacks where, where I'm like, okay, you know what? I tell the team, like, we can win this. We just got to play our game. This is one where if I were being honest, I mean, I didn't tell the team this like, you know, we, we can <laughs> play our best game and We're going to lose. Right. But well, we just kept fighting. And that was that mental toughness I was talking about. And uh, in fact, it was funny because we were, we were, we were getting blown out so much that, I think that when it was maybe 12, 13, I found out there were a bunch of our guys didn't even know that the game was so close. They're like, what? we weren't even down one? I mean, you know, it was, it's just they didn't even feel that we were still back in the game. But to me, that's the right mindset, right? They weren't yes. worrying about the score or, oh my God, we're going to have to play the backdoor. They were just playing. At many levels, that was super, super satisfying. They never did come back for the interview afterwards. Probably upset. But yeah, so that was one of my favorite moments.
0: <laughs> Calvin, that was a very interesting story do appreciate how you as a coach and the mental toughness you've instilled in your team helped pull you through in that game. But now I'm going to give you some bad news here, Calvin. Now you have to share your least favorite game as a coach. It doesn't have to be a game you lost necessarily. It could be a game that you won, but you didn't win the right way or, or things didn't go your way, whatever that looks like. So what's the least favorite game you've coached? And uh, if you can't think of one, maybe a tournament.
1: Well, I have two. One that sticks out was 2010. We lost regionals, and this was a, a season where we were battling injuries, and things really kind of came together at, at regionals. Except for regionals, we lost first game, and had to go through the back door, and we make it to the backdoor finals, and we fight and fight and fight. And one of our guys who had been injured had was like basically hobbling through that. He was one of our best players, and he actually had the winning goal in his hands. Got my hands up, and like ready to run across the field. And I think, you know, his proprioceptive system was off because he hadn't been playing much. I think he says somebody thought told him he was going out of bounds. So he suddenly leaps up and tries to throw the greatest, even though he was like two yards in. And of course, it's a turnover and we never get it back and we don't make it. And that to me was super disappointing. And one reason why it was super disappointing for me is we had a a fifth year student, forget where he's from, but Ryan Barton now works for NPR and he had come to UT for grad school one reason he chose UT was because he wanted to play on a team that went to Nationals. And I'm like, okay, we're gonna get him to Nationals. And we didn't get him to Nationals because of that. And so that that to me is a real disappointment. And then, you know, there are gonna be other disappointments, but that was yeah, that was a tough one.
0: Yeah, hard loss there. Calvin, appreciate you sharing that. And we're gonna move to the last segment here, rapid fire. I'm gonna start you off with some ultimate questions and then uh, we'll move into some non-ultimate ones here. So, first one is, which throw do you prefer, flick or backhand?
1: I mean, I guess everybody else will tell you my backhand's better, so I'll say backhand.
0: (laughs) Hammer or scuba? Definitely hammer. Or blade, blade? Blade. Okay, blade. We'll go with blade. (laughs) Would you rather drop a pull or drop a catch in the end zone? I guess I'd rather
1: drop a catch
0: in the end zone because I'd have more chance to get it back. What about, would you rather have five silver medals at nationals or one gold medal? And that's it. I think you got to go with the one gold. What about, should Ultimate, this is a hot topic here, should Ultimate be renamed to something else? No. (laughs) Should Ultimate have referees? We know uh, refs exist in, in certain pro leagues, but should Ultimate have referees even in the club or college level?
1: No, I think the observer system is the right
0: system. And last one here. Should Ultimate continue to pursue the Olympics or wanting to be in the Olympics? Yeah, I think it'd be great to be in the Olympics. Great. uh, Quick answers there from Calvin. And so some non-sports questions here. I'm going to give you a chance to share a meal with three people in the course of human history. They can be living or brought back from the dead. So you got to pick three people you're going to share a meal with there, Calvin.
1: I mean, I don't know. I just want to have a meal with my my family and my friends.
0: (laughs) All right, we'll go with that family meal there. And I know Austin has a big music scene. So I'm asking you a big music question here. Going to give you a chance to put on a concert in your backyard. Allowed to book any band or artist in the world. You got to pick three and the order in which they play. Well, okay. So I'm not a big
1: music fan. So, but I guess I'm going to go super, super old school. And so I, I would go with Billy Joel and Don Henley and the egos And then with
0: Bruce Springsteen. Nice. Uh, that sounds like a good concert to be honest so I think you have nothing to be ashamed of there with that pick. <laughs> <laughs> Last question here. Can't choose ultimate as the answer for this one. Going to give you all the talent in the world but you have to pick another sport to play. Be it like a professional team or organization that you want to be a part of. The position you're going to play as well. It could also be an individual sport like uh, golfing in the Masters for example or Wimbledon in tennis. So what would you pick?
1: Wow. I don't know. I've always loved basketball, so if I guess I get all the talent in the world, I would, you know, go play with the, the San Antonio Spurs with Greg Popovich. Not because I love the Spurs, but I think he's a great coach.
0: Back in, like, the Tim Duncan, uh, Ginobili days, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I want a good team, not not the current Spurs.
0: <laughs> yeah. Are, are the Spurs your team, then, or...?
1: No, no. Boy, basketball, you know, I used to be a supersonic fan, being from Seattle. Like the Warriors. I grew, up in, I grew up in the Bay Area.
0: They got a few teams there. That's cool. <laughs> and so, Calvin, that actually ends our show for today. If our audience wants to find out more about you and the team as well, where can they find you online? I guess, you know, this is not very uh, 2020-ish,
1: but you can send me email <laughs> at Linlin L-I-N, at cs.utexas.edu. And from there, you know, we, we can uh, use
0: a modern medium to communicate. Yeah, some people might have coaching questions or something, so you may hear from someone. And then what about the team? What about uh, Texas Tough? People want to
1: talk to me about Tough or anything, that's the way to reach us. We, we do have, I think, some... I'm sure there are other ways to reach us, right? Like through Twitter and all that. But
0: Yeah, I'll, I'll add all the social media stuff uh, in the show description there, uh, Facebook, Twitter, all that good stuff. I know there's a website as well where I found some good information about the team. So, All right, Calvin, appreciate your time, taking time out of your busy schedule. Teaching, coaching, all that good stuff. You mentioned uh, not getting a lot of sleep, so I appreciate you uh, doing this there. Great talking to you, Theo. Thanks for listening. Keep an eye out for the next episode, where I interview Aaron Daly, a three-time member of Team Canada who plays out of the East Coast of Canada and has won Ultimate Newfoundland's Female Player of the Year three years in a row. In this interview, Erin shares about capitalizing on the various playing opportunities she has received from all over Canada, which has helped her reach her goal of being on the national team. As always, you can follow me on Instagram at one underscore and underscore only underscore sports. You can see some of my commentary highlights on YouTube at one and only sports. Or you can reach me by email at theo.wan6 at gmail.com. Catch you listeners on the flip side. Peace.